I'm Holiday. I'm Taraday. I'm Independence Day. Oh, a microphony. And a phony at the mic. Get Whoa! Ah. <laughs> and now, on with the opera. Let joy be unconfined. Let there be dancing in the streets, drinking in the saloons, and necking in the parlor. Play, Don. Would you welcome Mr. Warm? Picture it. <laughs> Sicily, 1912. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another exciting episode of Killers, Cults, and Nutjobs 2.0, where we cover all crime. I'm, as always, your host, the great white snark, Scotty J, suffering through another sore throat. But I suffer for my art. And seated across from me is the lovely and twisted Monica. Hi. Oh, um, did you the other day at, when I was at work when um Jeremiah put up the that logo he created? Did you approve it on oh, yeah. the site? I like yeah, it. I'm really approved it. <laughs> well, I was at work and I saw it pop up and I'm like, okay, she had to approve it. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I like it. It's nice. I would like to use it as a. Well, except might, for the whole Staklanowski on the bottom, you know. Right. I mean, I'll I'll <laughs> see if I can trim it off. Yeah. For um. Well, she do like, like all the heavy lifting anyway, but. Yeah. All right. <laughs> okay, we are recording this on New Year's Eve, twenty twenty two. Oh, and... I can't believe! I can't believe that the New Year's almost here. I can't believe we're almost a quarter of the way into the century. That's why right. I can't. That's insane. You know, I mean, damn, that's you're right. I'll be lucky if I make it to 2073. Yay. <laughs> hey, I'll be a century, man. Medicine better be up to the point where they can keep me alive. Well, it's only like 50. <laughs> Right, Dana's already complaining because I'm 50 in a couple of weeks. She's 25 in March. Mm-hmm. So she's like, dang it, Dad, I'm going to be a quarter of a century. I'm like, what the hell are you complaining about? Shut, yeah. Shut up, Dana. <laughs> like, no, yeah. I like that. <laughs> I was like, you know what, kid? I got more to worry about than you, you know? After 50, I could have one foot in the grave and one on a banana peel at any moment, you know. What what was that Cat Williams joke? You know, after, once you get 50, you know, you could stretch wrong and pull a muscle. I like, God, like back in my 20s, I I was holding one of the dogs, just going down the steps. I went to sneeze. I didn't want to like, you know, throw the dog down the steps. Theirs, or you know, also me. Downstairs. So I forget. Like, I twisted the wrong way, and I threw my back. Mm. And I was in my twenties, so I I was working at McDonald's in my in my twenties, early twenties, before Dana was born. And this was back when we had to move the signs by hand in the lobby. Uh-huh. <clears throat> so I was stretched up, moving the sign, and I sneezed, and I pulled a muscle in my Ooh. right arm. Uh-huh. Oh God, it hurt. Yeah, I was like, I had to like lay on the couch for like uh, the rest of the night. I was like, this is insane. Uh, what led to my... not fall? And I didn't fall either. Like, what I was led collapsed. to <laughs> right? I had back surgery when I was twenty five, about six months after Dana was born, and I I had a bulging disc in my back, and it happened because I 
I was bending over to pick up a deck of cards. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and I, I, I just felt this tremendous pop in my back and I went straight mm-hmm. to my knees. And my ex-wife, we were dating at the time. She comes in. She's like, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, I can't get up. <laughs> so, yeah. And now, today, I've got two titanium rods holding the base of my spine together. Yay. Hey, I was working hard to become the $6 million man. Uh-huh. Steve Austin was a hero of mine. Way to really push it there. Yeah. You know, you got to suffer for your art. Uh-huh. All right, folks, we got a great one for you. We're going to end off the year with a great Hollywood scandal. Yay! Oh, oh Monica, Monica loves these tales. Oh, yeah. This, this is well, all... You, since you're more of the uh, the Hollywood scandal expert here... Which I actually just get into that more before I was into the true crime. Kind of like they merged from the Hollywood scandal stuff into true prime interest so yeah. would you say that this was one of the first scandals in hollywood oh yeah if you're wondering we're going to talk about the famous comedian fatty arbuckle or and i remember that family early seasons of family guy uh doctor told peter that he had a fatty corpuscle uh-huh. and his blushing was what do you mean I got a silent era comedian in my body? Cute. Yeah, back when Family Guy was good. Yeah, I never was actually into that. I, she just wanted the Virginia Rap. Well, get into it, but yeah, Virginia Rap is like one of the, I want to say probably like 92 was the first time I visited our grave because. Oh, nice. That's, yeah, the trip in 91 is when I got all interested into the scandals and stuff and okay like the screen is like that's not a very good person picture oh there you go good oh thank god right and i'm like please stop <laughs> but yeah that's one of the becoming the you know death hag this is right. one of the pieces that happened and the william desmond taylor too and we're go- i'm gonna look him up yeah but i that's was gonna funny. I need some more books on Errol Flynn because I wanted to cover his uh, statutory trial. Oh, uh, yeah. But yeah, she's um, the last trip we took to, you know, Los Angeles. I had to go visit Virginia again because of the 100th anniversary. Ah. Just, you know, the several months before we went out there again. And also the same with William Desmond Taylor, because since they're both at Hollywood forever, I had to go nice. find him since... His 100th anniversary had just passed in February, but yeah, basically all, right. all these cases are just, this is, the way you know me now is because of all this. So, well, and you bring such right a, now. and you bring such an added dimension to the show. Oh, well, you know, I try with this, but yay! Right, all right, Roscoe Arbuckle. <laughs> Sorry. Ro- Roscoe Arbuckle's his name. And he was born on March 24th, 1887 in Smith Center, Kansas. And I don't even know where that's at. In the center of Smith. <laughs> it, it's probably, the you know, Smith Center is probably in the middle of the prairie out there in Kansas. Yeah, I'll look it up while you're reading. <clears throat> Sorry about that. He, he was one of nine children for Mary Gordon and William Goodrich Arbuckle. Now, at the time of, of uh, Roscoe's birth, he came in at 13 pounds. 
and his father believed that he was illegitimate since both of his parents had slim builds. Now, I I mean, I had a I have a cousin. Well, he's dead now, but when his daughter was born, she was ten pounds, and I made the comment that she wrecked it on the way out. But him and his wife both laughed about it. But so you know, the parents have slim builds. He thinks he's illegitimate. So, because of this, he named him after Senator Roscoe Conkling of New York, who was a notorious philanderer who he despised. The birth was traumatic for Mary and resulted in chronic health problems that contributed to her death 11 years later. Well, yeah, you shat out a 13-pound kid. It's going to do some damage. And I want to make a Kool-Aid man joke right now, but I'm, I'm trying... I'm just going to say he came out of that like the Kool-Aid man. Oh, yeah. Now, our book was nearly two years old when his family moved to Santa Ana, California. He first performed on stage with Frank Bacon's acting company at the age of eight during the performance in Santa Ana. Our buckle enjoyed performing and continued on until his mother's death in 1898 when he was 11. Our buckle's father never stopped treating him harshly. And he now refused to support him, so he got work doing odd jobs in a hotel. He was in the habit of singing while he worked, and a professional singer heard him and invited him to perform in an amateur talent show. The show consisted of the audience judging acts by clapping or jeering, with bad acts being pulled off the stage by a large shepherd's crook. Oh, God, that's, that's classic vaudeville there, folks. Did you find where Smith's Center is located? Sorry, still looking. Okay, Okay, so duh, 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 where did I leave off? Arbuckle sang, danced, and did some clowning around, but he did not impress the audience. When he saw the crook emerging from the wings, he began to run around the stage, avoiding it, and did a su somersault into the orchestra pit in an obvious panic. Well, the audience went wild with his unintentional, his unintentional antics, and he won the competition. Thus began one of the greatest careers in vaudeville history. In 1904, Sid Grauman... Sid, is this the same one that did the uh, Chinese theater? Yep. Okay. Now, Sid was a showman and movie theater creator, and he invited Arbuckle to sing in his new unique theater in San Francisco, which began a long friendship between the two. He then joined the... Pantagias Theater Group touring the West Coast and in 1906 played the Orpheum Theater in Portland, Oregon in a vaudeville troupe organized by Leon Errol. Arbuckle became the main act and the group took the show on tour. On March 6, 1908, Arbuckle married Minta Dufry, Durfee. Durfee starred in many early comedy films, often with Arbuckle. They made a strange couple as Minta was short and petite while Arbuckle tipped the scales at a feisty 300 pounds. I could just hear Dr. Now going, you need to lose at least 30 pounds before you can get onto my program. Arbuckle then joined the Morosco Burb Burbank Stock Vaudeville Company and went on a tour of China and Japan returning in 1909. 
probably with a sumo championship. Arbuckle began his film career with the Salig Polyscope Company in July 1909 when he appeared in Ben's Kid. He appeared sporadically in Salig One Reelers until 1913 when he moved briefly to Universal Pictures and became a star and producer, director, Max Sennett's Keystone Cops comedies. Those were great. I, I seen some. He's at Holy Cross. We've seen his grave too. Oh, nice. Yep. <laughs> It took a while to find his because it was before the smartphone. So, but there, there wasn't a plot big enough that you know. Well, no, I'm talking about Max Sennett. Oh, Max! I was talking find. about. Yeah, well, it was like a lot of walking around. But... I thought you were talking about Fatty. No, we'll get to where he is. Okay. Although, <laughs> although his large size was undoubtedly part of his comedic appeal, Arbuckle was self-conscious about his weight and refused to use it to get cheap laughs, like getting stuck in a doorway or a chair. Arbuckle was also a talented singer. After a famed operatic tenor, Enrico Caruso, who heard him sing, he urged the comedian to, quote, give up this nonsense you do for a living. With training, you could become the second greatest singer in the world. End quote. And just think of what would have happened if he'd done that. He would have become the second greatest. <laughs> right. We wouldn't be doing this episode. Well, you know, it could be known with somebody else, too, right? Because, I mean, he'd still have been famous. True. Very so. true. Yeah, it wasn't like, come work in my grocery store or something, so. <laughs> hey, Freddy, come here and yeah. bag these groceries. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So. Despite his physical size, Arbuckle was remor- remarkably agile and acrobatic, much like Chris Farley. I was in <laughs> Chicago the day he died. I know. That's like one of my favorite stories. Well, I was in high school. Almost graduated, but yeah. Max Sennett, when recounting his first meeting with Arbuckle, noted that he skipped up the stairs as lightly as Fred Astaire, and that he, without warning, went into a feather-light step, clapped his hands, and did a backward somersault as graceful as a girl tumbler. His comedies are noted as rollicking and fast-paced, have many chase scenes, and feature sight gags. Arbuckle was fond of the pie in the face, a comedy cliche that has come to symbolize silent film era comedy itself. The earliest known pie thrown in film was in the June 1913 Keystone One Reeler A Noise from the Deep, which starred Arbuckle and his frequent screen partner, Mabel Normand. Actually, I've seen her too. Oh, nice. Yeah, now I've got a whole bunch of them like, by now. But... In 1914, Paramount Pictures made the then unheard of offer of $1,000 a day plus 25% of all profits and complete artistic control of his movies, just so they could make movies with Arbuckle and Norman. The movies were so lucrative and popular that in 1918, they offered Arbuckle a three-year, $3 million contract, which is equivalent to about $58 million in 2022 dollars. By 1916, Arbuckle was experiencing serious health problems. An infection that developed on his leg became a carbuncle, so severe that his doctors considered amputation. Although Arbuckle was able to keep his leg, he was prescribed morphine for the pain, although he would later be accused of being addicted to it. And that was probably one of the least of his problems. Following his recovery, Arbuckle started his own film company, Kamik, in partnership with Joseph Schenk. Although Kamik produced some of the best short pictures of the silent era, 
Arbuckle transferred his controlling interest in the company to Buster Heaton in 1918 and accepted Paramount's $3 million offer to make up to 18 feature films over three years. And considering how fast those movies were made back then, uh, 18 feature films over three years could have been nothing. A lot of those were shot within probably a couple days. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, Arbuckle disliked his screen nickname, Fatty, which had also been his nickname since he was in school. Fans also called Roscoe, or, yeah, Roscoe, Roscoe, God, I can't Roscoe, yeah, I know, I was like, wait a minute, you know that one. Right, I was thinking of Roscoe P. Coltrane from the Dukes of Hazard. Yeah, I'm like, it's not like Schuylkill, you know, or something like that. So they called Roscoe the Prince of Wales and the Balloonatic. Fatty, however, is the screen persona and was not the person. When he would portray a female, the character was Miss Fatty. An example is in the film entitled Miss Fatty Seaside Lovers. Arbuckle strongly discouraged anyone from addressing him as Fatty off-screen. And if for when they did, his usual response was, I got a name, you know. He sounds remarkably like Forrest Gump. My name's Roscoe. Roscoe Gump. Mama said life was like a box of chocolate until I ate the some bitch. Now, on September 5th, 1921, Arbuckle took a break from his hectic film schedule, and despite suffering from second-degree burns to both buttocks from an onset... I took a shot in the buttocks. Well, son, that sounds like a million-dollar wound. I'd like to see that. Okay. Yeah, that scene. Forrest Gump didn't get good until Lieutenant Dan showed up. I'm just saying. Yeah, just saying. Okay, so he burned both of his butt cheeks on an (laughs) an onset accident. Now I want to know how he burned his butt cheeks going to plague me the rest of the night. He drove to San Francisco with two friends, Lowell Sherman and Fred Fishback. Fred Fishback sounds like a mobster. The three checked into three rooms at the St. Francis Hotel. Now, is the St. Francis still standing? Yeah, it is. It's okay. Still in use as the hotel. Yeah, so everything. Still there. Uh, still 12.19 for Arbuckle and Fishback to share, and then 12.21 for Sherman and 1220 designated as the party room. I ain't got to have the party room. I mean, shit. Yeah. Even Zeppelin had a party room. Of course. I mean, like, what's the point of going all the way up there? And you know, yeah, I don't think the PCH was like, you know, around yet. So. Uh, if it was, it was like a dirt trail going up the, <laughs> going up the coast. So, yeah. But yeah. <laughs> the potholes were still there, but it was a dirt road. <laughs> Now, several women were invited to the suite. During the party, a 30-year-old aspiring actress named Virginia Rapp. Did I say that right? Rappé? Rappé. Rappé. Like Frappé. Okay. Virginia Rappé was found seriously ill in room 1219 and was examined by the hotel doctor, who concluded her symptoms were mostly caused by intoxication and gave her morphine to calm her. She wasn't hospitalized until two days after the incident. At the hospital, Rappé's companion at the party, 
Bambina Maud Delmont. There's a name for you folks. Sounds like she should be like appearing on the main stage. Bambina. Bambana, Bambana, Bambana. <clears throat> now, Bambina told the doctor that Arbuckle had raped her friend. The doctor examined her but found no evidence. Remember that, no evidence. She died one day after her hospitalization from periontitis caused by a ruptured bladder. Rappé suffered from chronic urinary tract infections and a condition that liquor intake would aggravate. Delmont then again told police that Arbuckle had raped Rappé. The police concluded that the impact of Arbuckle's overweight body lying on top of her had eventually caused her bladder to rupture. Interesting. At a later press conference, Rappé's manager, Al Semnacher, accused Arbuckle of using a piece of ice to simulate sex with Rappé, thus leading to her injuries. That, no, no, that doesn't, no. I'm I'm not going to say where my experience on this comes from, but it, it does not, does not lead to that theory. By the time the story was reported in newspapers, the the object had evolved into a Coca-Cola or champagne bottle rather than a piece of ice. In fact, witnesses testified that Arbuckle rubbed the ice on her stomach to ease her abdominal pain. Now, Arbuckle denied any wrongdoing, which, you know, he would say. And Delmont later made a statement incriminating Arbuckle to the police in an attempt to extort money from his attorneys. Arbuckle's trial was a major media event. The story was fueled by yellow journalism, with the newspapers portraying Arbuckle as a gross lecher who used his weight to overpower innocent girls. William Randolph Hearst's nationwide newspaper chain exploited the situation with exaggerated and (laughs) sensationalized stories. Hearst was gratified by the profits he accrued during the Arbuckle scandal, and he later said that it had sold more newspapers than any event since the sinking of the Lusitania. Morality groups called for Arbuckle to be sentenced to death. The resulting scandal destroyed Arbuckle's career along with his personal life. Studio executives, fearing negative publicity by association, (coughs) Arbuckle's Hollywood friends and fellow actors, whose careers they controlled, not to publicly speak up for him. Charlie Chaplin, who was in Britain at the time, told reporters that he could not and would not believe Arbuckle had anything to do do with Rappi's death, having known Arbuckle since they both worked at Keystone in 1914. Chaplin knew Roscoe to be a genial, easygoing type who would not harm a fly. Buster Keaton reportedly did not, oh, sorry, did make one public statement in support of Arbuckle's innocence a decision which earned him a mild reprimand from the studio where he worked. Film actor William S. Hart, who had never met or worked with Arbuckle, made a number of damaging public statements in which he presumed that Arbuckle was guilty. Arbuckle later wrote a premise for a film parodying Hart as a thief, bully, and wife-beater, which Keaton purchased from him. The resulting film, The Frozen North, was released in 1922 almost a year after the scandal first emerged. Keaton co-wrote, directed, and starred in the picture. Consequently, Hart refused to speak to Keaton for many years, which I'm sure broke, you know. Oh, Buster was rolling the bucks at this point. 
Uh-huh. So he's like, yeah. The prosecutor, San Francisco District Attorney Matthew Brady, made public pronouncements. And no, he's not the same Matthew Brady as the photographer. No. Scott, so sorry to, yeah. No, I, well, I figured it wasn't that man because he would have been dead by this point. Really old. Made public pronouncements of Arbuckle's guilt and pressured witnesses to make false statements. Brady at first used Delmont as his star witness during the indictment hearing. The defense had also obtained a letter from Delmont admitting to a plan to extort payment from Arbuckle. In view of Delmont's constantly changing story, her testimony should have ended any chance of going to trial. Ultimately, the judge found no evidence of a rape. After hearing the testimony from one of the party guests, Zay Prevon, that Repay told her Roscoe hurt me on her deathbed, the judge decided that Arbuckle could be charged with first-degree murder. Brady had originally planned to seek the death penalty. The charge was later reduced to manslaughter. On September 17, 1921, Arbuckle was arrested and arraigned on charges of manslaughter. He arranged for bail after spending nearly three weeks in jail. The trial began November 14, 1921, in the city courthouse in San Francisco. Arbuckle hired as his lead defense counsel, Gavin McNabb, a competent local attorney. Attorney. The principal witness was Prevon. At the beginning of the trial, Arbuckle told his already estranged wife, Minta Durfee, that he did not harm Repay. She believed him and appeared regularly in the courtroom to support him. So Brady's first witness during the trial included Betty Campbell, a model who attended the party and testified that she saw Arbuckle with a smile on his face hours after the alleged rape occurred. Grace Holtson, a local hospital nurse who testified that it was very likely that Arbuckle raped Repay and bruised her body in the process. And Dr. Edward Heinrich, a local criminologist who claimed that the fingerprints on the door to the hallway proved that Repe had tried to flee, but that Arbuckle had stopped her by putting his arm or putting his hand over hers. Okay, so here's my thing. If this woman is complaining of stomach cramps, she's not going to get up off the bed and try to run. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Unless... Unless those stomach pains also include having a severe case of diarrhea, in which case she's going to go to the bathroom, but she's not going to try running out of the hotel room. No. Okay. Dr. Arthur Beardsley, the hotel doctor who had examined Rappay, testified that an external force seemed to have damaged the bladder. During the cross, however, Campbell revealed that Brady had threatened to charge her with perjury if she did not testify against Arbuckle, oh, that's damaging. Doctor Heinrich claimed to have not testified. Oh, Doctor Heinrich's claim to have found fingerprints was cast into doubt after McNabb produced a maid from the St. Francis Hotel, who testified that she had thoroughly cleaned the room before the investigation took place. Oh, damaging again. Doctor Beardsley admitted that Rappe had never mentioned being assaulted while he was treating her. McNabb was furthermore able to get Nurse Holston to admit that the rupture of Rappe's bladder could very well have been a result of cancer and that the bruises on her body could also have been a result of the heavy jewelry she was wearing that evening. Yeah, I've seen enough SVU to know that jewelry can leave bruises. I never had heavy enough jewelry, except maybe this might be. <laughs> You're right. 
necklace right now is pretty heavy. So now on November 28th, Arbuckle testified as the defense's trial final witness. In his testimony, he claimed that Rapehe came to the party room, 1220, around noon that day and sometime afterward went into his room, 1219, to change, he went in there to change his clothes. After May Traub asked him for a ride into town. In his room, he discovered Rapay in the bathroom vomiting into the toilet. He then claimed that Rapay told him she felt ill and asked to lie down, and he carried her into the bedroom and asked a few of the party guests to help treat her. When he and a few of the guests re-entered the room, they found her on the floor near the bed, tearing at her clothing and going into violent convulsions. To calm her down, they placed her in a bathtub of cool water. Arbuckle and Fishbow then took her to room 1227 and called the hotel manager and doctor. At this point, all those present thought Rapay was just very drunk, including the hotel doctors. During the trial, the prosecution presented medical descriptions of Rapay's bladder as evidence that she had an illness. In his testimony, Arbuckle denied he had any knowledge of Rapay's illness. During cross-examination, Assistant District Attorney Leo Freeman aggressively grilled Arbuckle over the fact that he refused to call a doctor when he found Rapay sick and argued that he refused to do so because he knew of Rapay's illness and saw a perfect opportunity to rape and kill her. Yeah, right. It's like a bit of a stretch. Yeah. <clears throat> Just a bit. Yeah. Arbuckle calmly maintained that he never physically hurt or sexually assaulted Rapay in any way during the party, and he also stated that he never made any inappropriate sexual advances against any woman ever in his life. After over two weeks of testimony with 60 prosecution and defense witnesses, including 18 doctors who testified about Rapay's illness, the defense rested. On December 4th, the jury returned five days later, deadlocked, after nearly 44 hours of deliberation with a 10-2 not guilty verdict, and the mistrial was declared. Arbuckle's attorneys later concentrated their attention on one woman named Helen Hubbard, who had told jurors that she would vote guilty until hell freezes over. She refused <laughs> to look at the exhibits or read the trial transcripts, having made up her mind in the courtroom. Hubbard's husband was a lawyer who did business with the DA's office and expressed surprise that she was not challenged when selected for the jury pool. Yeah, that would disqualified her in a heartbeat. Yeah. While much attention was paid to Hubbard after the trial, some former jury members told reporters that they believed that Arbuckle was indeed guilty, but not beyond a reasonable doubt. During the deliberations, some jurors joined Hubbard in voting to convict but they all recanted except for Thomas Kilkenny. Arbuckle researcher John Joan Myers describes the political climate and the media attention to the presence of women on juries, which had only been legal for four years at the time, and how Arbuckle's defense immediately singled out Hubbard as a villain. Myers also records Hubbard's account of the jury foreman, August Fritz's attempt to bully her into changing her vote to not guilty. While Hubbard offered explanations on her vote whenever challenged, Kilkenny remained silent and quickly faded from the media spotlight after the trial ended. The second trial began on January 11, 1922, with a new jury, but with the same legal defense and prosecution, as well as the same presiding judge. The same evidence was presented, but this time one of the witnesses, Zay Previn, 
testified that Brady had forced her to lie. Another witness who testified during the first trial, a former Culver Studios security guard named Jesse Norgard, testified that Arbuckle had once shown up at the studio and offered him a cash bribe in exchange for the key to Rapé's studio dressing room. The comedian supposedly said he wanted it to play a joke on the actress. Norgard said he refused to give him the key. During cross-examination, Norgard's testimony was called into question when he was revealed to be an ex-convict who was currently charged with sexually assaulting an eight-year-old girl. Ooh. Uh-huh. And who was also looking for a sentence reduction from Brady in exchange for his testimony. This should have been declared a mistrial. Right there. Yep. Furthermore, in contrast to the first trial, Rapine's history of promiscuity and heavy drinking was detailed. The second trial also discredited some major evidence, such as the identification of Arbuckle's fingerprints on the hotel bedroom door. Heinrich took back his earlier testimony from the first trial and testified that the fingerprint evidence was likely faked. The defense was so convinced of an acquittal that Arbuckle was not called to testify this time. His lawyer, McNabb, made no closing argument to the jury. However, some jurors interpreted the refusal to let Arbuckle testify as a sign of guilt. After five days and over 40 hours of deliberation, the jury returned on February 3rd, deadlocked with a 10 to 2 majority in favor of conviction this time, resulting in yet another mistrial. Sorry, folks. Now, by the time of his third trial, his films had been banned and newspapers had been filled with for the past seven months with stories of Hollywood orgies, murder, sexual perversion. A typical Monday. A type of fun. <laughs> You're right. That's me <laughs> right all over it. <laughs> it sounds like, uh, oh God, I'm, I'm um, spacing on the fuck. I'm spacing on the name right now. Uh, I, I, I sounds like a Tuesday at uh, the Playboy Mansion. Oh, yeah. Now, Delmont was touring the country giving a one-woman show as the woman who signed the murder charge against Arbuckle and lecturing on the evils of Hollywood. Well, you know, you need a side hustle there. The lecture, sh- the lecture circuit is sure to bring in some money. Now, the third trial began on March 13, 1922, and this time the defense took no chances because they're already uh, zero, and, zero and two. Backs against the wall. They need a Hail Mary here, folks. McNa- uh, the defense. Oh, well, yeah, the defense. Oh, no, defense is one and one. No. Yeah, whatever. McNabb took an aggressive defense, completely tearing apart the prosecution's case with long and aggressive examinations and cross-examinations of each witness. McNabb also managed to get in still more evidence about Repay's lurid past and medical history. Another hole in the prosecution's case was opened because Pravon, a key witness, was out of the country after fleeing police custody and unable to testify. As in the first trial, Arbuckle testified as the final witness and again maintained his denials in his testimony about his version of the events. Buster Keene is said to have been in the courtroom and provided important evidence to prove Arbuckle's innocence. That Delmont was involved in prostitution, extortion, and blackmail. During closing statements, McNabb reviewed how flawed the case was against Arbuckle from the very start and how Brady fell for the outlandish charges of Delmont, who McNabb described as 
The Complaining Witness Who Never Witnessed. Sounds a title for a good book, man. The jury began deliberations on April 12th and only took six minutes to return a unanimous not guilty verdict. Five of those minutes were spent writing a formal statement of apology to Arbuckle for putting him through the ordeal, a dramatic move in American justice. The jury statement, as read by the jury foreman, stated, Acquittal is not enough for Roscoe Arbuckle. We feel that a great injustice has been done to him. We feel also that it was only our plain duty to give him this exoneration under the evidence where there was not the slightest proof adduced to convict him in any way with the commission of a crime. He was manly throughout the case and told a straightforward story on the witness stand, which we all believed. The happening at the hotel was an unfortunate affair for which Arbuckle, so the evidence shows, was in no way responsible. We wish him success and hope that the American people will take this judgment of 14 men and women who have sat listening for 31 days to evidence <clears throat> that Roscoe Arbuckle is entirely innocent and free from all blame. <clears throat> After the reading of the apology statement, the jury foreman personally handed the statement to Arbuckle, who kept it as a tre treasured memento for the rest of his life. Then, one by one, the 12-person jury plus two alternates walked up to his defense table where he shook his hand and or embraced him personally and personally apologized to him. The entire jury produced, proudly posed with Arbuckle for photographs after the verdict and apology. Some experts later concluded Jaffer Pay's bladder might also have ruptured as a result of an abortion she might have had, have had in a short time before the faith the full party. Her organs had been destroyed and it is now impossible to test for pregnancy. Because alcohol was consumed at the party, Arbuckle was forced to plead guilty to one count of violating the Volstead Act and had to pay a $500 fine. At the time of his acquittal, he owed over $700,000, which is equivalent to approximately $11,300,000 in $20,000, which is even a little bit more, just a year later. So, yikes. In legal fees to his attorneys for the three criminal trials, and he was forced to sell his house and all of his cars to pay some of the debt. The scandal and trials had greatly damaged Arbuckle's popularity among the general public. In spite of the acquittal and the apology, his reputation was not restored, and the effects of the scandal continued. Will H. Hayes, who served as the head of the newly formed Motion Pictures Producers and Distributors of America, or MPPDA, censor board, cited Arbuckle as an example of the poor morals in Hollywood. On April 18, 1922, six days after Arbuckle's acquittal, Hayes banned him from ever working in U.S. movies again. He had also requested that all showings and bookings of Arbuckle films be canceled and exhibitors complied. In December of the same year, under public pressure, Hayes elected to lift the ban. However, Arbuckle was still unable to secure work as an actor. Most exhibitors still declined to show Arbuckle's films, several of which now have no copies known to have survived intact. One of Arbuckle's feature-length films that is known to survive is Leap Year, which Paramount declined to release in the U.S. owing to the scandal. It was eventually released in Europe. 
With Arbuckle's films now banned, in March 1922, Keaton signed an agreement to give Arbuckle 35% of all future profits from his production company, Buster Keaton Comedies, in hopes of easing his financial situation. That's a good friend. Yep. In November 1923, Minta filed for divorce from Arbuckle, charging grounds of desertion. The divorce was granted in January of 1924. They had been separated since 1921, although Durfee, for the rest of her life, claimed he was the nicest man in the world and they were still friends. Arbuckle married Doris Dean on May 16, 1925. Wish my ex-wife could say that about me. <laughs> Same right here. <laughs> but oh, right. Whatever. <laughs> oh, well, you had the best. I'm sorry. Arbuckle tried returning to filmmaking, but industry resistance to distributing or distributing his pictures continued to linger after his acquittal. He retreated into alcoholism, which is never a good thing. In words of his first wife, Roscoe only seemed to find solace and comfort in a bottle. I do too, a bottle of Coke. That's because I, you know, that's because I don't have anyone else to share my life with at the moment. Wow, wow. <laughs> you know, is it, hey, that's opening a, a good Bon Jovi song, but, you know. Break into Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. <laughs> no, I don't know that one. I would have broke oh, into a, um, Don't Say Good, uh, Never Say Goodbye. That's a good one. <laughs> it was, it is. It is. I don't like a lot of Bon Jovi songs, but that's a good yeah, one. Some of them. A Bed of Roses. No. Right now? No. Um, that's like middle school for me, so. Yeah. I was I was junior, senior year when New Jersey came out, so it was like Bad Medicine, Lay Your Hands on Me. Um, yeah, I was elementary school, so. Oh, God, I'm trying to think. of. I can hear it right now. <laughs> These five words... I'll be there for you. I had oh, to yes. stop and think for a yeah. moment. Uh-huh. Yeah. I had to stop and th- you know, brain fart for a moment. Uh-huh. Uh, so, Keaton attempted to help Arbuckle by giving him work on his films. He wrote the story for a Keaton short called Daydreams, which was released in 1922. Now, he allegedly co-directed scenes in Keaton's Sherlock Jr. 1924, but it's unclear how much of this footage remained in the film's final cut. In 1925, Carter DeHaven's short character studies shot before the scandal was released. Arbuckle appeared alongside Buster Keaton, Harold Lloyd, who was another good one, Rudolph Valentino, Douglas Fairbanks, and Jackie Coogan. Jackie Coogan, I think he was the kid in um in um Chaplin's The Kid. He was. Who later went on to be Uncle Fester in the 1960s Adams family. It was. I love that show, man. <clears throat> that same year in Photoplay's August issue, James R. Kirk wrote, I would like to see Roscoe Arbuckle make a comeback to the screen. He also said, The American nation prides itself upon his spirit of fair play. We'd like the whole world to look upon America as a place where every man gets a square deal. Are you sure Roscoe Arbuckle isn't getting one today? I'm not. In 1932, he signed a contract with Warner Brothers to star under his own name in a series of six two-reel comedies to be filmed at the Vitaphone Studios in Brooklyn, New York. 
These six short films constitute the only recordings of his voice. Silent film comedian Al St. John, Arbuckle's nephew, and actors Lionel Stander and Shep Howard appeared with our... Oh, Shep! Nice! Three Stooges reference. <clears throat> I love me some Shep, man. Shep Howard appeared with Arbuckle. One of the films, How've, How've You Been?, had a grocery store gag reminiscent of Arbuckle's 1917 short, The Butcher Boy, with vaudeville comic Fritz Hubert as his assistant, dressed like Buster Keaton. The Vitaphone shorts were very successful in America, although when Warner Brothers attempted to release the first one, Hey Pop, in the United Kingdom, the British Board of Film Censors cited the 10-year-old scandal and refused to grant an exhibition certificate. On June 28, 1933, Arbuckle had finished filming the last of the two reelers, four of which had already been released. The next day, he signed a contract with Warner Brothers to star in a feature-length film. That night, he went out with friends to celebrate his first wedding anniversary with the, and the new Warner Brothers contract when he reportedly said, This is the best day of my life. Never say that. Never! Because he suffered a heart attack later that night and died in his sleep. He was only 46. His widow, Addie, requested that his body be cremated, as that was his wish, and the, re the remains were scattered in the Pacific Ocean. And that, folks... Yeah, one of the ones I really would like to have seen. Yeah, he was not... Oh, right. Scattered. Maple <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Norman connection, too, with William Desmond Taylor. Oh, nice. So... Yeah, for later too. Like she's well, that, now that. that you know, in the mention of this, that Shemp worked with uh, Fatty. Shemp also worked with uh, Abbott and Costello in some of their early films. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, the first time I found that, I I had bought a copy of uh, Buck Privates back on VHS. Oh uh, yeah, uh -huh. and I was watching it, and and there's a scene where. Um, <clears throat> Lou's doing KP duty. He's supposed to be peeling potatoes. And uh, he, he does this song called um, Hooray for Captain Brown. Mm -hmm. And one of the cooks in the mess hall was Shemp Howard. I'm looking I'm like, that's fucking Shemp. Yeah, I watched like you know, another long story and all. But yeah, it was classes I took was um he was in it. So it was kind of still weird like what's like jump doing <laughs> it's like well yeah it took I'm me a little like, it, it, it took out. me later it, you know it took me later to realize because i love the stooges uh-huh i'm like one of the few women that does well you know i have the entire ship i have the entire stooge collection of the shorts Ooh, tell me more <laughs> but um but i actually stop when uh joe besser comes on i will everybody does Right, because a true Stooge fan does not watch the Joe Besser shorts. Yeah, uh-huh. We, we, when the last one with Shemp is done, we're done. Yeah. Because, the, um, did you ever see the, um, the, the Mel Brooks made-for-TV movie about the Stooges? Yeah, like... <clears throat> it was like early 2000s. Um, the hey, it was um, Ray Garrett, Ray, or he's 
No, Brad Garrett did uh, the Jackie Gleason one. Yeah, I thought he was both. Um, um, uh, guy's name Evan Handler, I think. I think Evan Handler. He was in a uh, Californication. He yeah. played uh, Runkle. He played Larry Fine in the uh, uh, Chickless. I'm trying to think of the rest of his name. Uh, yeah, who is the? Um, oh yeah, uh-huh. um, yeah. I've got the poster for it, but yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I want to say Michael Chickless. Yeah, curl. Yeah, he played Curly. Evan Handler played um, Larry. I forget who played Mo. Yeah, it was out of two thousand. Yeah, and I want to say uh, John Cassier played Shemp. Mm-hmm. John Cassier is also the voice of the Crypt Keeper. Yeah. Actually, I've seen um, Evan Handler <clears throat> back oh, when. Oh, nice. He, yeah, on um, well, when he well, was doing Oops. Sex in the City. Well, no, like years before Sex in the City, he oh. was there. I was at the first and second um, taping of the worldwide hit show Oops. <laughs> and actually, yeah. you can hear me scream. And once, like on the second episode, during one of the gags. It's on YouTube. It's awesome. You can like actually you can hear me like scream for a second. I'm like, ah, that's a, well, I had James watch it. I'm like, that was me. <laughs> but um, no, he um, I I think the deal with Besser was was he wouldn't take a slap to the face like the Stooges did. Yeah. And I I it's just some Besser didn't work good, but he was only there to fill out the contract. Yeah, he didn't even want to be there at all. He needed. No, he was under contract by Columbia, so Columbia kind of forced him onto the Stooges. Yeah. Because if, if it wasn't, if they didn't go with uh, Besser, they were going to go with Dorita. That was not always kind of like <laughs> But then they ended up going with Dorita later when they, uh, yeah. when the rights got sold to television and kids all over America got to see the Stooges, so Dorita, yeah. and, and Dorita did um, but yeah, Besser is one them. of the yeah, because like Besser is one of the people that because I like seeing the um, yeah, like I wanted to see all the Three Stooges people, but oh, he's another one I kind of like. I've just skipped. The only the only Stooges I'd like to see are the Howard brothers and Larry. Yeah, well, actually, Larry was I saw him in '92 when he was actually he's the first um famous person that I like I stumbled upon that I knew. But I wasn't actually like legitimately like looking for. Right. You know? So I was like, ah, that's like and he was my favorite too. So that was cool. Well, but, um, yeah. And my um Mo Howard, he's also <clears throat> the same section as Mickey Cohen at Hillside. Ooh, so yeah. I mean that's what I love about this. Like I've said before, it's just you got Mo Howard and Mickey Cohen. I mean, like within like four feet of each other. Like um so. my my little nephew Jamil. Um, I actually nicknamed him after Larry. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, there was one morning he, he, he and Jamil's got this wild curly hair. I mean, this the before his first haircut, this was like an unkept mess. Uh-huh. And he followed me into the kitchen one morning because he knows Uncle Scott's going to give him some of his cereal. And I just kind of looked down to looked down at him and went, "What's up, Porcupine?" <laughs> And it stuck. He, I mean, it's amazing. He answers to it. 
Yeah, so that's cool. Yeah, I came down one day and he had just woken up from a nap and went porcupine and he made a beeline for me. Aw. Crawled up in my lap and sat there. So but that's gonna wrap up this one. Like I said, this is on new I'm hoping to get this thing out within the next couple of days because I'm off until Tuesday, so Yay. But yeah, then I go back to ten hour days. But everyone out there, have a happy and safe New Year's. Don't do anything stupid. Don't do anything we would do. Well, that's going to narrow the field down a bit. Yeah. And some of my friends have put up on Facebook, this is amateur drunk driving night. Yeah, which is what I didn't have anything. Well, I wasn't driving anyway, but I just had my little sort of orange and orange vodka drink, but that was it. Nah, I think the party theme tonight. So I think tonight I'm just gonna once we finish the recording here, I think I'm just gonna turn on the movie and relax. Yeah, yeah, I gotta find a new book to read, so I gotta go through the library and find something. I seriously doubt I'm gonna be up for midnight. So, oh god, I'm I'm not. Yeah, I'm like eh. I I might um might make it to ten, but I'm not gonna guarantee it. Yeah. <laughs> so stick with us through next year. Uh Monica and I have already been talking <laughs> up to me right. Please stay with us. <laughs> Don't leave. Um I'm looking into finding more this was something I just I, I talked about well in my head. You know. We, I'm going to look into more cults to, to kind of bring to the show because, I mean, cults are, are in the name. True. But I end up covering more serial killers. Well, and then where's the half of the nut jobs, though, too? Because actually, I guess that's well, like... well, when if we if we continue our Thursday night recordings, mm-hmm. um, we will be recording on my birthday. Yay. Uh, unless <laughs> something happens. Uh-huh. And I'm thinking of that night of doing the grand nut job of them all. Ah. Yes. Finally. You, you heard it here first, folks. Jan- uh-huh. The January 12th recording, my birthday, my 50th birthday, will be my father. Ooh. Oh, the grand requested. The 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 much requested grand poobah nut job of them all. Well, it's like interesting too because I've also been to places you've been with him, so I could kind of add my own little what I remember from it. Right. And so, I mean, you know, it's and then just... that actually also goes into the nut jobby weird crime ish too. Right. And I'm I'm gonna. I mean, I've been writing down like I listen to other true crime podcast so if there's a book about their case i write it down so i can look it up and i do know that uh jim baker connection so that's yeah yeah. we'll kind of all be oh it will be nice every tie-in so yeah yeah i i really want to get a book i there is a book on jim baker i want to pick up that i have to see if um amazon has it so yeah, because that's a, that's like the one part I'm going to be able to add anything. So yeah, right. <laughs> but it it was, ooh, yeah, yeah. 
Unfortunately, you don't have any good memories of that, but I do. No, no, I don't, but. Yeah, I'll be the life part of the show. That's right. (laughs) All right, folks, have a good 2020. Three. Yeah, I almost lost. This is, you know, I was just telling my mom this. Having two back-to-back holidays on a on a Sunday has thrown me off this week. Yeah, I kept thinking all day was t- I kept thinking all day today was Sunday. I was like thinking it was, well, like yesterday was Saturday. I don't know. I've been like all over. Right. It's like this week. It's like, then what day is it again? What, uh, like- right, because because you know I was off Monday for. From work, I went back to work Tuesday, work Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. I'm going to do the same thing next week. I, the, the holidays throw throws me for a loop every time. Yeah. But everyone have a happy 2023. Tune in with us next year as we bring you more of society's fun folk. Yay. And, <laughs> and for killers, got some nut jobs. I am Scotty J. Say good night, Monica. Good night, Monica.